Hello, fellow followers of Christ, and welcome to the show that introduces you to the men and women behind history's greatest works of literature. Come along every week as we explore these renowned authors, the times and genre in which they wrote, why scholars praise their writing, and how we as Catholics should read and understand their works. I'm Joseph Pierce, and this is The Authority. Hello and welcome to The Authority. I'm Joseph Pierce, and this week we are going to be looking at uh, one of the great metaphysical poets, Richard Crashaw. Um, let me say a few things about the metaphysical poets. Uh, as their name suggests, um, they work on the level of metaphysics. So they are usually, it's, it's religious poetry. So the best known metaphysical poets are probably uh, George Herbert and John Donne uh, and Richard Crashaw and Sir Robert Southall, who we've already featured here. Um, amongst the greatest of the metaphysical poets. So one thing about metaphysical poetry is the use of the conceit, which is a very similar to what we might call a Chestertonian paradox, where you bring together two images that, that don't seem to belong together, uh, that, that, that appear to be an apparent contradiction or a, an apparent conflict that uh, points to a deeper truth or a deeper resolution. So that's one of the devices of metaphysical poetry, which we will look at when we come to look at um, Richard Crashaw's um, uh, poetry. Um, so uh, there's a un un unusual connection, or perhaps unexpected connection, between Shakespeare and Richard Crashaw. I say unexpected because uh, Richard Crashaw was not born until 1613, uh, which is about the time that that Shakespeare definitively retired from. Um, uh, from writing his plays and returned to Stratford-upon-Avon, uh, where he would die three years later in 1616. So Richard Crashaw was only three years old when Shakespeare died. Um, and so clearly there's no direct connection between the two men per se. However, there is a connection between um, Richard Crashaw and uh, William Shakespeare in the form of William Crashaw. William Crashaw was Richard Crashaw's uh, father. Now, as we can see, there's an irony here, a deep irony, because Richard Crashaw would actually become a convert to Catholicism, and more about that uh, in a moment. But his father was a very... Um, uh, vehement and even virulent and we might even say venomous uh, Puritan uh, preacher uh, who uh, I'm even tempted to say ranted uh, against Catholicism and also against the theatre so uh, and, and this was during the time of when Shakespeare was writing his plays and indeed it is due to uh, um, Puritan preachers such as William Crashaw uh, uh, and and uh, and others that Shakespeare was probably prompted to actually retire early um, when things were getting, uh, he was being connected with the Jesuits and being attacked publicly um, as the Jesuit and his poet. Um, uh, and so that, that, that Shakespeare probably thought that, you know, he wanted to get away from the heat and that's probably prompted his early retirement because he retired certainly very much still at the height of his powers when he retired and was apparently seemingly in reasonably good health. So this is what uh, William Crashaw said uh, at, in, in a sermon delivered at St. Paul's Cross in London in 1608. 
uh, again, right at the time that Shakespeare's writing his plays. And quote, The ungodly plays and interludes so rife in this nation. What are they but a bastard of Babylon? And we should say here that a ba- Babylon is a, is a Puritan euphemism for Rome. Uh, puritanical Bible speak, if you like, that that um, that the uh, the church is the whore of Babylon. So the ungodly plays and interludes so rife in this nation. What are they but a bastard of Babylon, a daughter of error and confusion, a hellish device, the devil's own recreation to mock at holy things? By him delivered to the heathen, and by them to the papists, and from them to us. Wow. Apart from its relevance to Shakespeare, this attack on papist plays by the puritanical Crashaw is noteworthy as being one of the pithiest put-downs of Western culture ever made. In one terse, bombastic sentence, the entire legacy of the West is dismissed as being being a contagious disease passed from the devil to the Greeks and then to the Romans and the Catholics until finally, via Shakespeare and his fellow playwrights, it had contaminated modern England. Two years later, in February 1610, again, Shakespeare's still writing his plays at this time, Crashaw was again equating Shakespeare and his ilk to the devil in a sermon he preached to the Lord Governor of Virginia. On this occasion, he fulminated that the greatest threat to the newly founded colony was to be found in Catholicism culture and other satanic manifestations quote we confess this action hath three great enemies but who be they even the devil papists and players so satan catholics and playwrights and those who go to the theater drama Considering William Crashaw's shrill attack on Catholic poets such as Shakespeare, it is ironic that his own son Richard, one of the greatest of the metaphysical poets, would convert to Catholicism, dying in lonely exile in Italy uh, in consequence. So I want to say a little bit about uh, Richard Crashaw's life. So I said he was born in 1613. His father was this uh, um, uh, Puritan preacher, uh, and yet he, far from following his, his father's footsteps he would convert to catholicism uh, at around the time of uh, of the rise of the puritans to power um when uh during following the english civil war from 1642 to 1645 it's a bit messy as to when it starts and ends um but during the, the period of the 1640s the puritans come to power by defeating the king uh, in the Civil War, so the Royalists on one side, King Charles I and his allies, and the Puritans Parliament, the Parliamentarians, sometimes known as the Roundheads, uh, led by Oliver Cromwell on the other. Cromwell uh, was a brilliant uh, uh, military strategist, and um, it was largely due to his genius that the uh, the parliamentary, parliamentary forces won, and the king would eventually in 1648 be executed um, setting up a short-lived republic in England, um, sometimes called the Commonwealth, but was, was in fact an actual f- fact a puritanical totalitarian 
tyranny uh, where the theatres were closed. Obviously, Catholics were ruthlessly persecuted, where Christmas itself was banned for a while. And indeed, the character of Father Christmas uh, emerged in English culture um, from the, uh, its earlier beginnings in medieval mystery plays as, uh, as the, uh, the, the uh, figure of uh, the resistance of Merry England, of, of Catholic Christian England to this uh, puritanical tyranny. So with great courage, Richard Crashaw um, becomes a Catholic at this time. Uh, and is forced into lonely exile, living uh, in poverty for a very short while, uh, ending up uh, at Loreto, the Marian shrine in Italy, where he dies tragically young at the age of uh, uh, 36 in 1649, um, probably as a direct consequence of his exile and the poverty it caused. So I want to spend the remainder of uh, of this looking at a book I compiled, um, anthology of, of poems every Catholic should know, four tan books. Um, uh, and um, there's a selection of Richard Crashaw's poetry in here I'd like to actually um, to uh, read from. And But unfortunately, I've got to find it for here we are. And, it, and you'll see, actually, the thing about Richard Crashaw, um, he is very much the spirit of the Catholic reformation or the catholic baroque um the spirit of catholic uh what sometimes called the catholic counter-reformation of the 17th century of the 1600s he was hugely inspired by saint Teresa of avila and saint john of the cross and john of the cross is another great poet who we should probably at some point think about including in the authority um, another like St. Robert Southall and St. John Newman, a, a poet who's also a saint. Well, uh, the figure of St. Teresa of Avila in particular, St. John of the Cross as well, uh, these great saints who re reformed the Carmelite movement in the 16th century um, were inspirational to, to Richard Crashaw in the 17th century. And he wrote two wonderful poems about St. Teresa of Avila, one is somewhat too long to uh, to uh, enjoy here, um, but we'll read the shorter one, or maybe we part of uh, a hymn to the name and honour of the admirable Saint Teresa. And what I would like to invite you to do, because it seems to me that that, that, that Richard Crashaw's poetry is is um, ha has a kinship of spirit with Bernini's famous sculpture of St. Teresa of Avila, um, which is one of the most famous sculptures in the, in the whole of Western civilization. So take a look at that, um, uh, and it's, you'll see that, that Richard Crashaw is doing in words what uh, Benini does uh, in, in sculpting marble. So a hymn to the name and honour of the admirable St. Teresa, and this is a long poem, one of the great poems. I'm just going to read some extracts from it. Since tis not to be had at home, she'll travel for a martyrdom. No home for her, confesses she, but where she may, a martyr be. She'll to the moors and trade with them for this unrivalled diadem. She offers them her dearest breath with Christ's name in it in change for death. She'll bargain with them and will give them God and teach them how to live in him, or if they this deny, for him shall teach them 
how to die. So shall she leave amongst them sown her Lord's blood, or at least her own. Farewell then, all the world adieu. Teresa is no more for you. Farewell all pleasures, sports and joys, never till now esteemed toys. Farewell whatever dear may be, mother's arms or father's knee. Farewell house and farewell home, she's for the moors and martyrdom. Sweet, not so fast, lo, thy fair spouse, whom thou seek'st with so swift vows, calls thee back and bids thee come to embrace a milder martyrdom. And this, of course, is uh, her role in reforming the, uh, the Carmelite order and a life of penance and prayer and austerity, the slow martyrdom, as he calls it. And we'll read just the concluding lines of this wonderful poem, one of the greatest uh, in the canon of English verse. Thou shalt look around about and see thousands of crowned souls throng to be themselves thy crown, sons of thy vows, the virgin birth with which thy spouse made fruitful thy fair soul. Go now and with them all about thee bow to him. Put on, he'll say, put on my rosy love, thy, thy rich zone, sparkling with the sacred flames of thousand souls whose happy names heaven keeps upon thy score. Thy bright life brought them first to kiss the light that kindled them to stars, and so thou with the Lamb, thy Lord, shalt go. And whereso he sets his white steps, walk with him those ways of light, which who in death would live to see, must learn in life to die like thee. This learning to live by dying is actually a recurring motif in Richard Crashaw, almost to the point of it being overdone, one, one might dare to say. For instance, his motto, it's just the author's motto, he, he, this um, is an epigram, and we, we see, we're going to show some more of his epigrams uh, later. But live, Jesus, live, and let it be my life to die for love of thee. So this is Richard Crashaw's personal motto, live Jesus, live, and let it be my life to die for love of thee. This is a recurring theme. We see how it, the, 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 he ends his poem on St. Teresa in the same way. Um, uh, Walk with him whose ways of light, which who in death would live to see, must learn in life to die like thee. Though I like St. Teresa of Avila. And then this short poem on St. Teresa, which I also love, uh, upon the book and picture of the seraphical Saint Teresa. O thou undaunted daughter of desires, by all thy dower of lights and fires, by all the eagle in thee, all the dove, by all thy lives and deaths of love, by thy large draughts of intellectual day, and by thy thirsts of love more large than they, 
By all thy brim-filled bowls of fierce desire, by thy last morning's draught of liquid fire, by the full kingdom of that final kiss that seizing thy part or soul and sealed thee his. By all the heaven thou hast in him, fair sister of the seraphim, by all of him we have in thee, leave nothing of myself in me. Let me so read thy life that I, until all life of mine, may die. So the same recurrent motif, but tell me uh, if there are many more beautiful prayers, because that as well as being a wonderful poem is a marvellous prayer, um, asking for the intercession of the seraphical St. Teresa of Avila. Let's look at some of... Um, some of um, uh, his uh, other poetry that I that, that I selected in this book. Obviously, there's loads more that I did not select. Um, all of them here. So I've I've selected verses from the Shepherd's Hymn. So you watch longer poems, which I've had to actually had to have excerpts from them from the so long. But he's actually better known for very brief poems. But uh, just to to conclude, well, just one verse that. I've, plucked from the I don't know, dozen or so that I selected from the verses from the uh, the shepherd's hymn. To thee, meek majesty, soft king of simple graces and sweet loves, each of us this lamb will bring, each his pair of silver doves. At last, in fire of thy fair eyes, ourselves become our own best sacrifice. All right, so I'm going to read some of these epigrammatic uh, short verses now, only a few lines, um, all of which are just marvellous. So, on the water of our Lord's baptism, each blessed drop on each blessed limb is washed itself in washing him. Tis a gem while it stays here, while it falls hence, tis a tear. Short, simple, sweet, sublime. But let's look a little bit more closely. Because remember, we talked about how metaphysical poetry is, uh, is marked by the use of a conceit, which I liken to a Chestertonian paradox. Uh, putting of two things together that don't seem to fit, that seem to conflict with each other or contradict each other in order to make us see something in a fresh light with, with new eyes to see it uh, as it really is, perhaps to rekindle within our jaded worldly vision a childlike innocence that's necessary to see things as they truly are. So here, on the water of our Lord's baptism, what's he doing? Uh, he's seeing it not through our eyes, but from the perspective of the water itself. Um, each blessed drop, each blessed limb is washed itself in washing him. That Christ himself doesn't need baptism, of course. He's He's God himself. Um, that uh, that he's baptized as, as, as a mark of obedience, um, as a mark of uh, symbolic uh, um, uh, adherence to the law. As a, as a prefiguring of the, the sacrament, sacrament of baptism itself. But he did not need 
himself to be baptized as we do in, in order to remove the stain, the mark of original sin. So the water is not washing the sin away sacramentally. It's being washed by the sinless one. Each blessed drop is washed itself in washing him. Tis a gem while it stays here. So while it's actually touching Christ's skin, it's like a gem, a jewel, a priceless jewel, not mere water, but something that's kissing the face of God. So when it falls from that face, uh, it becomes a tear. It's creation separated from the creator. This is Crashaw's brilliance, uh, the use of conceits to take us deeper through inviting us to see with fresh eyes. So again, another four-line epigrammatic uh, verse. But men love darkness rather than light. This is obviously scriptural. The world's light shines, shine as it will. The world will love its darkness still. I doubt, though, when the world's in hell, it will not love its darkness half so well. So the light of the world being actually darkness, destined for darkness itself, the absence of the light of God, which is hell. On St. Peter casting away his nets at our Saviour's call. What a delightful way to be invited to re-look at well-known gospel stories. Thou hast the art, Aunt Peter, and canst tell to cast thy nets on all occasions well. When Christ calls, and thy nets would have thee stay, to cast them wells, to cast them quite away. So the fisherman needs to become a fisher of men. He needs to cast away uh, his nets, not cast the nets to catch uh, fish from the Sea of Galilee, but uh, to cast the nets themselves away that he may become a fisher of men. The best way to cast the net is to cast them quite away. And then Domine non sum dignus. I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof. Those that line we say before communion, of course. But only say the word and my soul shall be healed. Thy God was making haste into thy roof. Thy humble faith and fear keeps him aloof. He'll be thy guest, because he may not be, he'll come into thy house, no, into thee. Okay, so obviously that when we say, thou, thou shalt not enter under my roof in, the, in, in, in um, the holy sacrifice of the mass, uh, we're not using it in the sense in which it's used in the gospel, not enter into my house, but enter into our very selves. The roof is our own soul. Uh, two went up into the temple to pray. Two went to pray. Oh, rather say, one went to brag, the other to pray. One stands up close and treads on high, where the other dares not send his eye. One nearer to God's altar trod, the other to the altar's God. 
the exaltation of the humble. Uh, I'm going to pass over a few more here now and we'll finish with uh, with one final poem. But there's others on the blind cured by the word of our Saviour, on Christ crucified and upon our Saviour's tomb wherein never man was laid. But I'm going to end with an epitaph upon husband and wife. By the way, the word turtles in here, as I'm sure you know, Shakespeare wrote a, wrote a, wrote a poem called The Phoenix and the Turtle uh, when uh, Elizabethan and Jacobean writers um, such as Shakespeare and Crashaw use the word turtle. They mean turtle dove and not, uh, not um, uh, an amphibious shelled creature. An epitaph upon husband and wife. To these whom death again did wed, this grave's the second marriage bed. For though the hand of fate could force twixt soul and body a divorce, it could not sever man and wife, because they both lived but one life. Peace, good reader, do not weep. Peace, the lovers are asleep. They, sweet turtles, folded lie, in the last knot that love could tie. Let them sleep, let them sleep on, till the stormy night be gone, and the eternal morrow dawn. Then the curtains will be drawn, and they wake into a light whose day shall never die in night. We've had plenty of Good work, uh, poems, epigrammatic poems about uh, saints and about Christ, about the gospel. But it's good, I think, to end on an epitaph upon husband and wife, this glorious poem about the glory of, uh, of the holy sacrament of matrimony and of the way to heaven, which uh, is the way of marital love and the uh, the destined home which is heaven for those who stay true to their marriage vows um so on that note we we will end this discussion of richard crashaw one of the great metaphysical poets a convert to the faith um who died in lonely exile in consequence um practicing what he preached so beautifully in his poetry thanks as always for joining me in the authority i'm joseph pierce do join me next time until then, goodbye and God bless. This has been an episode of The Authority with Joseph Pierce, brought to you by TAN. For updates on new episodes and to support The Authority and other great free content, visit theauthoritypodcast.com to subscribe and use coupon code AUTHORITY25 to get 25% off your next order, including books, audiobooks, and video courses by Joseph Pierce on literary giants such as Tolkien, Chesterton, Lewis, Shakespeare, and Belloc, as well as Tan's extensive catalog of content from the saints and great spiritual masters to strengthen your faith and interior life. To follow Joseph and support his work, Check out his blog and sign up for email updates and exclusive content at jpierce.co. And thanks for listening.